Well, again, it is so good to be here with you this morning, to be back, um, to be in the house of the Lord with you and to be able to worship with you in person and to actually stand here in the pulpit after several weeks. It, is just, it feels good. Um, I, we'll see how it goes, but it feels good from here. Uh, you know, Kristen uh, led us in a wonderful sermon last week about the spiritual gifts that Paul writes about in chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. And I wanted to revisit that and keep, us, and keep these gifts in front of us. You know, as we think about these gifts and what Kristen was saying last week about how they are for the good of the church, all of these spiritually provided gifts that God gives us in our baptism, in our, in our faith walk, they're to be used for the good of the church, the uplifting of the church, of the growth of the church, for the, for the good of the members of the church, and to be a reflection to the world of God's grace, of God's love, God's forgiveness and patience and tolerance. Let that stay with us as we consider these gifts again today. How many of you actually took the inventory, the spiritual gifts inventory, in the past couple of weeks? Yeah, wasn't that interesting? Were you surprised by anything? Yeah, it's pretty surprising. You have 20 different gifts out there that you can find yourself landing on, and you just go, well, what, what, what does that mean? I heard a couple people talk about it in our Sunday school class this morning, and I, I was given the, it says I had the gift of prophecy. What exactly is that? Well, it means you speak with an authority of God, God's word. That's a powerful gift. You know, as Paul was writing these, um, these Corinthians, this church in Corinth, and this was a church that he knew, he founded, he was very familiar with this church, and they were very familiar with him. They knew each other. They had a relationship. He spent time with them. They loved him. He loved them. And he was their pastor. He was their shepherd. And whenever they had a problem, if he was out and about on one of his journeys or back in Jerusalem or back home in Tyre, wherever he was, they would write him or send a messenger to him to say, we're having some issues, we're having some questions, and we need, we need your help. Paul, if you could just kind of illuminate the issue we're seeing and guide us, give us some guidance. And so he would write back or send word back to the church. And we don't have any of these letters that the church sent to him. We don't have any of that. All we have is what Paul wrote in reference, answering these concerns, these issues, these questions. And so we have to kind of take what he wrote and begin to piece together exactly what the problems were. And there were all kinds of problems in Corinth. They had problems about uh, how, 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 do we, how do we live together? How, do, how, do we be, how are we to be this community when people are suing each other within this community? How do we be the community if we don't agree on marriage and sexuality and intimacy? And how are we to be this community if we can't even agree on eating food that's been offered to false gods, to idols, which were everywhere around Corinth? Some said it was fine to eat the food that had been offered to idols. Others said, that's an abomination. You can't do that. How do we continue as a community if we can't even agree on public worship together? 
How do we continue when there are divisions created on socioeconomic levels because there were wealthy, well-to-do families who could gather early and have a meal together and drink as much as they wanted before those who were working late could arrive for worship service to find the food had been eaten, the wine had been drunk, and there was a revelry in the room. They were being left out. Another division had been created. How do do they continue to be this community of faith when they can't even agree on the spiritual gifts? Which one is higher than the other? Which one is more important than the other? And Paul comes in and says, you got it all wrong. They're not more important. They are working together for the good of the body. Just as our body has multiple organs and parts and bones and muscles so does the body of christ have many various members with different gifts and all of these gifts are placed in the membership of the church to lift it up to make it better to encourage and empower and grow the church He got it all wrong. The church was at great risk of splintering apart on all of these different levels. They couldn't even agree on being in the same community because some had come in the church under Paul, others had come in under under pastors, and, and they were lining up along apostolic lines. How do you continue? How can the church continue? So Paul begins to address each of these issues throughout this rather long letter. And in chapter 12, as Kristen talked about last week, he lands in the spiritual gifts. And he addresses how these are mutually beneficial for the body. And then as he closes out this chapter, he has this incredible, incredible transitional sentence. Verse 31 of chapter 12, Paul writes, But strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. So he's just told the church these are mutually beneficial gifts, not to be rank-ordered. And then he says, But strive for the greater gifts, and I will show you still an even more excellent way. What, Paul, you just said, and now you're saying... What do you mean? He's about to launch into this beautiful poem about love. God's love. God's love for people. God's love for God's people. And he does this in a peculiar way. Go ahead. Strive after the greater gift. Strive for the greatness And what you're going to find is the greatest of these is love. God's gift of love for all humanity, without which nothing is effective. Everything, every gift you could possibly imagine on our inventory of 20 spiritual gifts and beyond, these are all empty if they are not founded, rooted, and empowered by divine love. Empty. Useless for the body. 
You know, I think about this passage because whenever, I don't know how many weddings I've done over the past however many years I've been doing this. I've done a lot of weddings. I've performed, officiated a good number of weddings, and I've attended that many more. And more often than not, either this passage, this chapter, or some portion of this chapter is read in a wedding ceremony. And it's a great chapter. It's a great passage to read at a wedding ceremony because it's about divine, perfect love. And so when I think about these couples, when they, when they walk up here, and then the groom is standing here, the bride, the doors, they, they fling the doors open, and then the bride and her father or whoever's walking her down the aisle, they come and stand right here in the center before this entire congregation that's gathered to witness this event. For them to declare their intentions to be in this relationship, a loving, working, growing relationship. And we read these words. And these words drive the couple, drive the congregation, drive the entire community, drive the entire world beyond a brotherly love, an erotic love, but to a divine love, a self-giving, self-sacrificing love, an agape love. And that's what this chapter 13 is all about. And so I think about, and I even ask couples when they are doing their premarital counseling, how is it that you affirm one another? How do you show love to each other? How do you receive love from each other? There was a famous book came out a couple of decades ago called The Love Languages by a man named Chapman. I don't know if you've read that or not, but it's a, it's a very interesting book. And, and he addresses the question about the, how, do we, how do we understand the reception of love from people who are important to us? How do we know we're loved? And, and how do we demonstrate and show and, and give love to those whom we love? And so I, I ask you, how do you know you're loved? What is it that someone can do to show you they love you? Anyone? Silence? Spend time. Any others? Y'all are a quiet group. You're loved, people. Talk to each other. Someone in the previous service said, uh, be honest when it's difficult to be honest. Be brutally honest with one another. Spend time. Talk to each other. Maybe give gifts. Do you, do you feel love when someone gives you something? Do you feel like that's a way you show love is to give somebody a, a flower or a card or candy on Valentine's Day? Christmas? Birthdays? A pat on the back? A word of affirmation, of encouragement? We all have these languages that tells us that we are loved. But whatever our languages are, however we receive this symbol, this message of love, it's incomplete. We just can't fully reveal what love is, no matter what our language is. It's too deep. It's too big. 
It's eternal. It's perfect. It's complete. And there's nothing that we can do that can gather up and package and tie a nice little bow on a complete, perfect love. We can only offer bits and pieces, revelations along the way. And that's what Paul is doing in chapter 13. And as he, in, in this letter, for 12 chapters, he's moved this letter through this prose, argument after argument after argument. And in chapter 13, he shifts gears. No longer is he speaking in prose. But he's speaking like Elizabeth Barrett Browning. How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. I love thee to the depth and breadth and height my soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being an ideal grace. He moves into this poetry. Because there are times and there are occasions and there are ideas that we just can't fully express in prose. It's best expressed in music. It's best expressed in art and poetry. It begins to kind of unfold and, and unwrap the beauty and the wonder of this idea of this divine and self-giving, self-sacrificing love. And that's what Paul does in chapter 13. I invite us to hear with fresh ears Paul's words about love. If I speak in the tongues of mortals and of angels, but do not have love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give away all my possessions, and if I hand over my body so that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. But as for prophecies, they will come to an end. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will come to an end. For we know only in part, and we prophesy only in part. But when the complete comes, the partial will come to an end. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put an end to childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. Now I know only in part. Then I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. And now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. 
and the greatest of these is love. May God bless the reading of the word. Paul settles in his argument on this poem about God's love. Greek word is agape. It moves beyond eros, romantic love, and um, well, brotherly love. <laughs> this Greek word just escaped me. Brotherly love and erotic love into this self-sacrificing divine love. That's, that's what holds all of this together. That's what holds the church together. The church locally and the church universally. The church throughout all time. And in all places, it's divine love. We are given these gifts by God when we acknowledge and accept his love and his forgiveness. Wherever we are and whenever we are. And as we accept and move into his love and forgiveness, we begin to... Love and forgive as we have been loved and forgiven. We begin to show one another here in our midst and those beyond our midst what love looks like, what God reveals to us through our experiences with God and with one another. These spiritual gifts of chapter 12 help us do that. Not one of us in this room has a full array of all the gifts. But we together are a complete body with all the various gifts, all the gifts that we need to love one another, to forgive one another, to tolerate and live with one another in a faith community that is beyond our complete understanding. Because love is the root, the foundation, and the power of all these gifts of our community together. Paul, as he closes out this poem, begins to talk about this transition. And the transition is moving from what is possible what God makes possible in this life and in the life beyond this life. And what will be fully realized and revealed in the ultimate end. The end of time. That we will know fully as we have been fully known. Paul is talking, has been talking about a, an image of the community that exists and will exist in perfection in the future. And he knows that we can't fully understand it, that it hasn't yet to be fully revealed. But we're called by God to reveal to the world something we don't fully understand. Something that we have not have received the full revelation. And
And now we begin to ask, how is this even possible? How do I show something to somebody I don't even understand? And the answer is God. God's love working through these gifts, working through this community, working for the good of the community to show the world, the world around us, what love looks like, what love acts like, what love does to reveal community, faith, hope, to work for encouragement and healing, to be patient and tolerant. That's the power of these gifts. It's wrapped up in this love that is constantly revealing itself through our time in this life and at the end of all time. So what do we do? Every day, we acknowledge and accept God's love for us. God's forgiveness of us. And we begin to live with that love and that forgiveness. So that as we understand love and forgiveness, we live with love and forgiveness. And those around us, our brothers and sisters in this community, in the church, will receive it. And the world around us will see it. And that is our proclamation. That is our witness to the world of God's love self-sacrificing love that forgives and leads us to grow one another. That's a powerful revelation to know that we are loved in such a way we can't fully understand it. We just know we're loved and forgiven and we're called to live in such a way that reflects love and forgiveness to the world. In the name of the Father, of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.